Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on our latest online selections of important peer-reviewed research and reviews for Part 2 of our September-October 2019 issue. You'll hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. About a third of schizophrenia patients do not achieve sufficient clinical benefit from antipsychotic agents. As a result, they suffer from an enormous personal burden, as well as a marked socioeconomic impact on them, those who care for them, and on society. Clozapine is the only evidence-based treatment for treatment-resistant schizophrenia. However, not only is it underutilized, but is also used very late in the illness. Only 40 to 50 percent of those receiving treatment will experience a sufficiently robust clinical response to be able to achieve recovery. Current guidelines for pharmacologic management of clozapine-resistant schizophrenia illustrate conflicting evidence with little consensus. In this CME offering, the authors retrospectively examined Operational Criteria or OPCRIT Mental State Examination Severity Scores from all 325 patients consecutively admitted between 2001 and 2017 to the National Psychosis Service, a tertiary-level specialist service located in London. Patients were divided into groups according to their medications at admission and discharge. For each group, the change in total OPCRIT scores was calculated as a percentage of the baseline score. The largest group comprised 136 patients who were admitted without clozapine and were discharged on clozapine treatment. They had a nearly 50% reduction in total OPCRIT score. Of these, 84 patients had augmentation of clozapine with another antipsychotic at discharge. The most effective clozapine augmentation strategy was adding pride which was associated with a 61% reduction of symptoms, followed by adding a mood stabilizer. The current real-world data suggests that augmenting clozapine with pride or with mood stabilizers, if mood disturbance is indicated, is associated with the greatest clinical improvement. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the September-October table of contents at psychiatrist.com. The first weeks after discharge from a psychiatric hospital constitute a period of considerably increased risk for suicide. Most studies of risk factors have investigated a relatively long time frame after discharge or have identified unmodifiable factors. In a recent case-controlled study from Austria, researchers focused on factors describing the interaction between patient and hospital and include variables from the entire course of the hospital stay. Suicide cases were identified by linking a suicide register with registers of three psychiatric hospitals. Post-discharge suicide cases were defined as suicides occurring within 12 weeks after discharge. Control subjects were patients who had been inpatient in the psychiatric unit but had not committed suicide. The study period comprised seven years. 
A total of 89 suicides and 144 controls were included. Factors differentiating cases from controls included a history of suicidal behavior or threats, depressive symptoms and disordered thought content at admission, admission mode with suicide among self-referred patients less frequent, a change from one ward to another, discharge initiated by the patient, depressive symptoms at discharge, and a scheduled linkage with post-discharge care. The study results point to preventative suicide measures that may be implemented during and after hospitalization, such as clear transfer of information in case of unavoidable ward changes and optimization of organized follow-up care. Reports of self-harm are increasingly common, particularly among adolescents. Little is known, however, about the potential impact of a past history or current thoughts of self-harm during pregnancy and the postpartum. In light of this, the authors of the present study conducted a prospective cohort study funded in part by the National Institute for Health Research, 545 women from a representative sample in southeast London were asked firstly whether they had ever self-harmed and secondly whether they had thoughts of self-harm. Self-harm ideation was assessed shortly after the first antenatal visit at 28 weeks gestation and three months postpartum. Women were also asked about depressive symptoms at the same three time points using the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale. At three months postpartum, a five-minute free-play interaction between mother and infant was recorded and coded according to the CARE Index to measure mother-infant interactions. Mothers were also asked about how they felt they were bonding with their child using the postpartum bonding questionnaire. The study found that women with a history of self-harm or current self-harm ideation were more likely to experience depressive symptoms during the early antenatal period. Although self-harm ideation was much more strongly associated with depressive symptoms in both the antenatal and postnatal periods. Similarly, thoughts of self-harm at first antenatal visit were predictive of controlling maternal and compulsive infant behaviors. From this, the authors conclude that asking about thoughts of self-harm in early pregnancy may help identify a group of women with vulnerabilities throughout pregnancy and the postpartum. This article is freely available online. Please visit the September-October Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Venous thromboembolism represents a major cause of morbidity and mortality worldwide. Recurrent venous thromboembolism remains a frequent complication during follow-up and is associated with poor clinical outcomes. Antipsychotic drugs are associated with an increased risk of thromboembolic disease. However, their effects have not been evaluated in segments of the general population with a high burden of comorbidities or who are still undergoing current anticoagulation treatment. This retrospective cohort study sought to delineate the effect of new antipsychotic use on the risk of recurrent thromboembolic events after a first episode of either deep venous thrombosis or pulmonary embolism. Conducted between January 2010 and June 2017, 
and based on the Institutional Registry of Venous Thromboembolic Disease in Argentina, the main exposure was antipsychotic use, and the main outcome was recurrent venous thromboembolism, a combination of recurrent deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, or death, served as secondary outcome. A total of 1,103 patients were included in the present analysis, of whom 12% were new users of antipsychotics. Of note, 67% of patients were currently treated with anticoagulation agents. No association was found between the use of antipsychotics and recurrent venous thromboembolism. However, the use of antipsychotics was associated with a 63% increased risk of recurrent venous thromboembolism, or all-cause mortality. This finding can be explained by the absence of a detrimental effect of antipsychotics or the protective effects of anticoagulation. Overall antipsychotic use among patients under anticoagulation treatment was not associated with recurrent thromboembolic events in this study. However, antipsychotic treatment was associated with a higher risk of both recurrent venous thromboembolism and all-cause mortality, which may prove a more relevant and patient-centered outcome. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration announced in 2015 that acetaminophen in either over-the-counter or prescription products taken by mothers at any time during pregnancy posed a risk for their children to have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD. However, the association between prenatal exposure to acetaminophen and offspring ADHD risk in Asian and Taiwanese populations has been unclear. The authors of this study compared 950 study pairs, children with ADHD and their mothers, against 3,800 control pairs, children without ADHD and their mothers, for the investigation of this risk. They ultimately found an association between exposure to acetaminophen, especially in the first and second trimesters, and an increased risk of ADHD in offspring. Based on these results, clinicians and pregnant women are reminded that the prescription and use of acetaminophen must be carefully evaluated during pregnancy. How does one define delirium? Physicians know that it's common and dangerous, but it's still often unrecognized. They know how to describe delirium, but it's hard to measure and pin down the diagnosis. Current assessments rely on subjective checklists that vary between raters and are hard to incorporate into a busy hospital workflow. Delirium results in electroencephalography or EEG changes, but EEG is impractical for screening. This study hypothesized that a simple form of EEG can be used for point-of-care delirium screening. With funding in part from the National Institute of Mental Health and the National Science Foundation, the authors recruited adult inpatients and assessed them with their EEG-based device to calculate a numerical score and conventional screening tools. They then classified each subject as delirious or not delirious based on clinical measures and the EEG score. They measured mortality, length of stay, and rate of discharge not to home. 
Results showed that the EEG score was significantly associated with clinical diagnosis of delirium. Additionally, a poor EEG score was associated with longer hospital stays, discharge not to home, and increased mortality. To their surprise, the authors also found that the EEG score is a better predictor of mortality than a clinical diagnosis. People with poor EEG scores, but who were clinically judged not to be delirious, had a higher mortality than people who were clinically delirious, but had a better EEG score. From these results, the authors conclude that this simple, quick bedside screening device can provide objective, high-throughput screening for delirium. Especially, it can identify people who are at high risk, but who would not be detected by current clinical assessments. This article is freely available online. Please visit the September-October Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Schizophrenia is a serious, lifelong mental illness. Recovery is possible with consistent, supportive treatment, but relapse is common. A frequent contributor to relapse is treatment non-adherence. Long-acting injectable antipsychotics can improve treatment adherence and continuity, potentially improving outcomes for patients, but these agents are underused. Adherence to long-acting injectable formulations is more easily monitored than oral medications due to the nature of administration. Yet, prescribers often believe that patients have negative attitudes about injections and tend to avoid prescribing them. In this CME Academic Highlights section, supported by an educational grant from Indivior, experts John Kane and Christoph Carell describe the frequency and consequence of non-adherence and offer strategies to improve adherence and overall patient outcomes. To read this academic highlights and take the CME post-test, please visit the September-October table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Visit the JCP website to watch a series of brief video segments in which experts in neurology, psychiatry, and primary care from the Banner Healthcare System discuss the diagnosis and treatment of Alzheimer's disease. This CME webcast, supported by educational grants from Acadia, Allegan, Avenar, and Biogen, explores methods for developing therapeutic rapport with patients and their families, detecting cognitive impairment, characterizing the patient's cognitive behavioral syndrome, and determining the etiology of the cognitive impairment or dementia syndrome. Experts also address strategies for delivering a diagnosis to patients and their care partners, planning treatment regimens, and offering education and support. To view this webcast and take the CME post-test, please visit the September-October Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Do benzodiazepines pose a risk when taken during pregnancy? A recent large case-controlled study indicated nearly doubled odds of spontaneous abortion among women who took these medications. Another study, a large meta-analysis, found no association between benzodiazepines and fetal malformations. In a two-part series, Dr. Andrade takes a critical look at these studies and discusses the impact that their methodology may have had on the conclusions. The full text of these columns is freely available online. Please visit the September-October Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. 
In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the newest online offerings from Part 2 of the September-October 2019 issue on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.